if your brain is also then able through these prediction errors to find itself in, quite malleable and find itself in different states that otherwise it wouldn't be able to access, then I think that that's where this feeling of this real of these truths are coming from. And I think, you know, that's one reason why if you're tripping, you, there might be a tree there and you might feel like, you know, you're really like connecting with this, this tree or, or, or whatever it is, but it, it's maybe this, you know, a nature being such like a, a present, you know, and this connection with nature or even experience of, of oneness, which, which can be felt. Maybe that is coming from your brain being able to revert back to some maybe more, I don't know, I don't want to say primitive, but almost more kind of older state, one that doesn't have all of these concepts that um, our present day society like layers into it and boxes it in, but it allows it to revert to and, and to see, yeah, to see these things afresh from the inside rather than the outside. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Joining us today is Thomas Luton, an independent science journalist and filmmaker who has had a lifelong itch trying to figure out how we came to be where we are now, from the Big Bang to the origin of life on Earth and the emergence of consciousness. As a student who studied physics, Thomas thought telescopes and particle colliders would offer firm answers, but instead, they raised more questions. Is the theory of everything even possible? Does the scientific method get anywhere close to truth? And perhaps critically, how do the practices and institutions of science need to change if we're going to create a livable future? Given that many of these topics often overlap with insights coming out of psychedelic experiences, these are the questions we're going to dive into today. Also joining us today is the guest of our most popular episode of Field Tripping to date, titled The Taste of a Mango with Dr. Randy Sherlock, Field Trip's US Medical Director. Randy is joining us because his deep interest in conversations around science and consciousness is one of the things that he and I bonded over, and he's just a delightful guest at the worst of times. So we thought it would be an extra interesting conversation for Randy to join us. So Randy, Thomas, thank you for joining us today and welcome to Field Tripping. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks. Yeah. So first question for both of you, uh, we'll start with you, Thomas, but taking a cue from my friend and previous Field Tripping guest, Keith Ferrazzi. What is one sweet thing going on in your life today? And what is one sour thing going on today? Well, I've uh, had some, I guess, I've been playing the family nurse a little bit. My partner has concussion and, and my dog just got spayed. So I guess that's been both a bit of sweet and sour. The sweet thing is it's glorious weather. The sour thing is it's London feels very much like it's in the middle of a climate crisis. So a bit of both for both of those things. Fair enough. What about you, Randy? Well, my uh, sweet thing for the day is I get to have a conversation with Thomas Luton. I'm excited about that. Sour? Well, I have to spend some time with a lawyer today. Um, but that there's good things on the other side of that. Yeah, I think there's some sweetness in that as well. If exactly. the conversation goes as uh, both you and I hope it goes. So that's great. Well, thank you for sharing. I figured it was a good way to open up a conversation and get to know each other a little bit because some of this conversation for the listeners out there is going to get a bit technical um, because we think it's important to establish a framework of knowledge before we can dig into some of the interesting aspects of the conversation. So, well, there are many things I'm excited to speak with both of you about today. Thomas, 
One of the things that inspired us to invite you to join us was the article you wrote in the March 2022 edition of New Scientist called A New Place for Consciousness in Our Understanding of the Universe. But before we dive into that conversation, I'm really curious to know what started you on the path to being a science journalist in the first place and these areas of exploration that we talked about in the intro. I suppose it's something that which I started I mean, at university. I was running the, the science magazine there. And some of the ideas, which I love touching on in articles, you know, that are looking quite broadly at, at different areas of science and trying to place them in some sort of historical or social or philosophical context is, yeah, has, has always been there. It's only something I've kind of come back around to in the last few years, actually, via a sort of stint making, um, sort of filmmaking. I think I, yeah, um, as you uh, said at the start, there was a certain itch to really to try and grapple more with some of the intricacies of these ideas, which I feel like features writing has, has sort of really allowed me to do. Were you on a path to becoming a science student or, you know, a scientist from a very young age? Was this always kind of your path or were you one of those people right before university who was like, shit, I got to pick something. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty good at math and science. Let's go this way. I think when I was younger, I naively couldn't understand why more people wouldn't want to study physics. To me, it seems that that was, uh, you know, there were some real answers there to what to me seemed to be the most important questions to try and get a sense of what the hell was going on in life. So I guess I thought I would be a physicist, but the more I studied it, the more I became dissatisfied with the kinds of answers that were coming out of that. It's a question for both of you, because I guess given your respective backgrounds grounded in the sciences, uh, I feel like probably the community of people at university or in medical school and beyond, I have a feeling a lot of them are pretty closed off to a lot of the conversations that we're going to dive into here. And, and was that one of the struggles that you kind of alluded to, Thomas? And, and certainly that's a question for, for you, Randy. So why don't you answer that first, Randy, about when did your exploration into consciousness and quantum physics and this intersection really uh, emerge? And was that almost fueled by probably the reactionary nature of uh, the people in your professional circles as well? Well, for me, my introduction to the idea that Thomas wrote about in The New Scientist, that consciousness could be a fundamental property of the universe, that was revealed to me experientially. It was during a medicine ceremony, the individual consciousness of Randy just flew away and it was replaced by the realization or the appearance that my consciousness is confluent with the consciousness of the entire universe. But I had absolutely no idea what to make of that in the moment. So I then had to go learn and read and a subscription to the new scientist is part of that. So thank you, Thomas. <laughs> It's like a good sales pitch. And what about you, Thomas? Was there kind of like a, a reactionary element to? Um... Uh, I think I think when I when I was studying physics, I um, in some ways was disappointed by how little engagement there was with, say, ideas in history and philosophy, and uh, how you know important that seemed to try and, and contextualize things we were learning about, whether that was in quantum mechanics, with learn about for example, these, these different kind of interpretations. And, and I think that is something which also applies to the field more generally. I feel like there isn't enough engagement with m many physicists. I mean, obviously, some do at a very deep level, but I think 
this current juncture where there has been for some decades, you know, some frustration in trying to move beyond, say, standard model of particle physics, which describes the very small or, or beyond general relativity or what, what's next, you know, a need to maybe look at these philosophical foundations. And I guess that's what drove me to write about this article. It, it, it was that, and it was also this special issue of the Journal of Consciousness Studies that Philip Goff, um, a philosopher uh, who has been very much pushing this idea of panpsychism, this idea that uh, there is some consciousness in everything. And so this was kind of an open call to philosophers, but also to physicists who may be beginning to engage with some of these ideas and think about if this might be one possible path towards making yeah, yeah, some progress in that. So before we go down that path, uh, I just want to clarify for our listeners that it may come as a surprise to many people, but it would appear that some of the ideas and concepts that many religions and philosophers have been espousing for eons, such as the fact that there may be no objective reality or that the linearity of time that we experience is just an illusion, um, may actually be starting to be validated by quantum physics and quantum theory, uh, that these philosophical subjects are actually very much scientific in nature. But before we can dive deep into that conversation, I think it's important that we provide those listening with a basic understanding of what we're talking about. So to start, uh, this is a question for you, Thomas, but feel free to wade in, Randy, if you think there's any clarifications or simplifications that may be necessary. What is quantum physics and how does it differ from basic Newtonian physics, just to sort of set the, the basic framework of what we're talking about? The, the classical Newtonian paradigm is, is one where you, you have objects which are in definite locations and they move according to certain laws of mechanics. Newton came up with his law of gravitation, for example, there were Galileo's laws of motion. Everything is very predictable and deterministic, right? You know, if you know how all the particles in the universe happen to be moving at a particular moment, you could predict the future, essentially. Now, what quantum mechanics does is it turns all that on its head and it brings in this idea of uncertainty. I think there's a lot to explore there. Randy, is there anything you, you want to pipe in here? I, I seem to recall from our conversation last time that we touched on Schrodinger's cat and, and or Schrodinger's kittens. Did we talk about that in our last podcast, Randy? Uh, I feel like we may have, because um, it may be a useful uh, ex- conversation point just to try and again establish a little bit more of a, a workable understanding for people who may not be familiar with the subject already. Did we talk about that? Am I calling correctly or am I making stuff up? Yeah, I don't remember, but, you know, Schrodinger proposed his cat thought experiment to really highlight the difference between classical or Newtonian physics and the realm of of quantum mechanics. So for your listeners, just to summarize really briefly, classical or what we call Newtonian physics describes the world that is at our scale, tennis balls, cars, even rocket ships. But when you get down to a very, very fine scale of looking at subatomic particles, they don't follow the same rules. So really all quantum mechanics is, is it's the mathematical description of the behavior of nature at its most fundamental level. And it doesn't need to be limited to small things because the mathematics that describe one electron can describe an entire molecule. It's it's just a different mathematical description 
than the way we perceive everyday objects. And to Thomas's point, at that quantum level, things can appear to be in two places at once or have have different time scales. All kinds of weird things can happen. Jumping quickly, because I thought that was an, an, an important point about the extent to which, which, which Randy was making about how, you know, we see these experiments happening at its microscopic level, but the extent to which they then extend into our every, everyday world. And it's very much like an open and an exciting question in, in the field right now is trying to, you know, we have this problem of coherence and that when you have like more and more particles and you're looking on everyday scales, you have stuff bashing into each other and stuff is warm. And that means these often quite delicate quantum effects are, are destroyed, but there are experiments underway, which are trying to create these very controlled conditions, trying to create, trying to see whether these quantum laws behave to bigger and bigger objects. And I think the biggest they've done so far is looking at things like viruses and I'm really, I'm really trying to build up to see if there is some point at which, you know, the quantum world stops and it, it, we naturally enter a classical world. And, and this kind of work will help us to get some handle on, yeah, say how fundamental quantum mechanics is. I think there was this Einstein, famous Einstein quote, because, you know, he, he kind of hated on quantum mechanics, but talking about whether the moon was there or not when you were looking at it. Um, and I think that's a, a really nice exact example you know is it possible could it be possible that the moon is not there when when you're not looking at it yeah so so just to unpack that a little bit to to try and circle everything up in terms of conversations about quantum physics and it's probably the most germane point for this conversation is that one of the potential conclusions of of quantum mechanics is that everything exists in a state of probability until there's an observer at which point the probability function uh, collapses and you know that something actually exists. So parlaying that into the conversation about the moon, Einstein who historically found the conclusions of quantum mechanics to be very troubling, kind of quipped, uh, I like to think that the moon is there even if I'm not looking at it. The basic point being that if there's no consciousness in the universe to cause that wave uh, function to collapse, um, then the moon doesn't exist, right? Nothing exists. Everything only exists in a state of probability, not in actuality. And so, and so that's why, you know, a lot of people struggle with quantum mechanics and some of the outcomes of this is, is kind of mind blowing about how to try and make sense of it, about does everything exist in a state of, of probability uh, until you have an observer. Let's park that conversation. I think we'll continue to uh, unpack it. But part of that conversation was the notion of, of consciousness, that you may need a, quote, conscious observer for that wave function to collapse. But in order to have a real conversation about consciousness, which will also lead us into psychedelics and all that kind of stuff, we need to have a common definition of, of what consciousness is. So, yeah, I think consciousness is a very slippery word. Um, and often people don't really agree on what it means, which isn't very helpful when you're having these, yeah, kind of debates with often very different kind of philosophical foundations, even in a maybe quite physicalist, materialist sense, you could even see it as the interconnected networks of information in our brain. I think one of the leading kind of theories of consciousness in neuroscience is this integrated information theory from, from Timoni. And, um, but I think maybe a what is uh, we mean a bit more intuitively is this kind of feeling of what it is like to ex experience the world. There's that 
there's that famous essay by um, by Nagel that's what, what is it like to be a bat? And I think that I really love that because it makes you even consider what consciousness might be like for other beings. You know, you think about octopuses and they have, you know, this central brain, but then also eight other arms with their own distributed consciousnesses. And so it really just gives you a sense of the huge variety of what that consciousness might be. But I think at its core really, and perhaps a better term is, is to be thinking in terms of experience, in terms of these things called like our, our senses, which are also called like qualia sometimes, you know, the, the redness of, of an apple, for example. I think that is a bit more of a grounded way of thinking about it. And then to think of consciousness as, as a kind of, some kind of unified whole of all of our senses together at any present moment is how I would, yeah, try to think of it. Thank you. And Randy, uh, do you want to add anything to that, clarify it, argue against it? Uh, it, it just really, I think it's trying to put a box around how we can think about what consciousness is as we delve into the rest of the conversation. Yeah, in its most simplistic term, the Eastern mystics talk about consciousness as simply being awareness. Sometimes I struggle with that because that leaves out the agency component. Awareness, I think, is a pretty good um, bucket term. So in, in that definition, which is probably easier to unpack a little bit, uh, you know, I, I remember uh, seeing, I think it was an oatmeal cartoon about, you know, the staircase of consciousness, right? And, and you have, you know, chickens looking down on fish and fish looking down on plants and then monkeys looking down on chickens, then the humans looking down on monkeys and, and kind of like that's the, the upward spectrum of consciousness and humans in theory at the top, uh, because not only are we aware, we're also self-aware, but it begs the question, is a plant conscious? Is an amoeba conscious? Is a dog conscious? You know, it gets a little bit fuzzy because most people would be like, dogs have personality. Are they self-aware? I don't know if they're self-aware. Probably, maybe not. Certainly not as self-aware as, as humans are. Um, so let's use the plant as an example. In your mind, according to at least your operating definition of consciousness, uh, is, is a plant conscious? It's been a long time since I read The Secret Life of Plants, but I would <laughs> challenge anybody to read that book and come away with it thinking that plants aren't conscious. And, and if you imagine, as um, Thomas's article in New Scientist is suggesting, that consciousness is a fundamental property of the universe, then it's not surprising at all that plants would be conscious. It seems like a natural extension of the way things are. If you take that that premise that consciousness is a fundamental element, and we we will talk about this a little bit more, then everything is conscious. Anything that has matter um, is is conscious or energy, you know, even or energy. Yeah. Um, what about you, Thomas? What's your what's your personal perspective on whether plants are conscious, or even if not plants, if we want to go down that that spectrum to like a, an amoeba? Yeah, I, I'd certainly say describe them as intelligent and. But, you know, with consciousness, I, I think it's, as I was saying, it's a word which has so many different meanings. And I think using that term in that case can sometimes people's idea of what consciousness is, particularly if it's, if they're thinking what it's like to be in their own heads and then placing that onto a plant, um, I think can sometimes lead, lead to confusion, but they certainly have this incredible ability to 
yeah, be aware of and adapt to, you know, and react to their, their surroundings. Um, and if we're speaking about consciousness in terms of, of awareness, then yeah, absolutely. One way I, I think I'm trying to comprehend consciousness is, you know, um, and I've had this debate with friends uh, as to whether there is free will. Um, and, you know, one argument is, is that a very simple level, uh, certain life forms are just algorithms, right? As, as a very elementary example, you know, our, our reflexes, you hit a person on the knee at the right spot and you reflect, right? There, there's no conscious decision. And I think the notion of consciousness that I work with is that there's something that intercedes between stimulus and response. And, and the people who say there's no free will says, no, 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 we're just very complex algorithms. And if you unpack the algorithm enough, then stimulus and response are um, directly connected, even in the human experience. But everyone else, I think, would say, no, the opportunity to interfere with the stimulus response mechanism is an element of consciousness because we have some degree of choice uh, in, involved in that. H how do you respond to that perspective of consciousness? We need some way trying to measure this. And I, you know, this is one of the, <laughs> the big problems with this whole debate is that it's impossible to know, even know whether, you know, anyone else exists out there or to get, you know, because this is such an uninternal phenomenon. So we have to have, yeah, some, some way of quantifying it. I think pain, for example, is a really good one. And one which is practically used that there's this bill going through in the UK at the moment, which is giving, um, they use the word sentience and attributing that to different animals. I think crabs, for example, being one and I think fish, for example, uh, you know, are, are another great example. And you can do you can do experiments, and you can see how different creatures behave if in response to pain. If they try and seek an environment which reduces their pain, then that is there is something in them which is you know is leading them to act in in a way to reduce their pain. And I think that is yeah, sentience is a good good word for is, that. Is there a difference if, between sentience? And consciousness, uh, or for these purposes, or are they kind of an overlapping term? And again, Randy, feel free to weigh in on all of this. I see them as, as very similar. I think the word sentience is, is just used because consciousness has quite a like specific, quite, you know, it's seen as a higher form of consciousness. Whereas I think what we are all collectively talking about here is consciousness to mean a behavior um, which, yeah, can exist at many different levels across an, an, an entire spectrum. So, yeah, I would. I wouldn't see a huge difference. Yeah, I, I do have some thoughts about Philip Goff's work. So he, he is a proponent of the theory of panpsychism, which acknowledges that there really isn't a way to explain subjective experience coming from electrical or chemical activity. Like that, that, that just doesn't, we don't understand how that leap could happen from the way your brain works to, oh, I'm tasting a mango. And so Philip Goff's suggestion is, well, maybe every single fundamental particle has some degree of proto-consciousness. But then as Thomas was pointing out, you're left with something called the combination problem. How do you get all those particles together to form Randy's consciousness or Ronan's consciousness? The very simple answer that Thomas alluded to is quantum field theory. And, and I've always been kind of shocked that Philip Goff has been so resistant to incorporate that into his model because seeing the world as a collection of particles is really just an approximation for the deeper reality, which is that 
the world isn't really made out of particles. It's made out of fields and they're all connected and they're all entangled. And in a sense, they're all one thing. And so that, that single thing that is all the entangled fields of the universe together is the solution to the, the combination problem. The real solution isn't more philosophy. It's for the philosophers to understand the physics better. So just like unpack that. So, so the idea is that um, the, those micro consciousness or proto consciousness, as you said, uh, if we keep going down and down and down in terms of from the macro to, to the micro, um, we're left at, at, at a level of everything's just made up of fields. Is, is that, that correct? Um, is, is consciousness a part of those fields or just consciousness emerge from those fields? Well, that's the fundamental question. But to, to loop back to your question about Don Hoffman, his answer to that question is that the fundamental nature of reality is consciousness. And what's interesting is, is Don's sort of getting a reputation for being way, way out there on the edge of um, you know, scientific viability. But what's fascinating is he's actually sharing the same theories that all of the fathers of quantum mechanics came to. Most of the guys who worked on quantum mechanics in the first third of the 20th century, by the 1940s or 50s, most of them came to the conclusion that the universe isn't physical, it's mental. It, that it is a mind manifesting itself rather than a collection of particles. And when World War II came along, the interest in that kind of waned and it never got picked up again. And so Don is now in a modern context seen as introducing novel ideas, but, but they're, they're old to physics and they're very ancient to the mystery traditions. One of my favorite quotes about um, the fathers of quantum mechanics comes from Arthur Eddington. And he said in 1928 in his book, The Nature of the Physical World, he wrote, something unknown is doing we don't know what. And that is still, a hundred years later, a very accurate description of science and, and the world. And what, what that something is, is, is probably consciousness. That is fair. So, I mean, I'm only about halfway through The Case Against Reality by, by Don Hoffman, but the basic... Uh, description of, of what he's writing about in the first half of the case against reality is that not going quite as uh, esoteric as, as some of the things we touched upon, but his point, which I think is, is really easy to digest uh, for a lot of people, is that the human experience, we're not experiencing reality as it is. We're experiencing reality as we have evolved to experience it. That feeling this desk is not necessarily a reflection that this desk is an object, objective piece of reality, but that I've evolved to realize that whatever is behind that, the level of what we perceive as objective reality, there's a piece of information that helps me select towards survival and procreation as opposed to it being an actual piece of matter. It really makes a lot of sense. And then it goes to the mathematics that it's almost a virtual certainty that humans have evolved um, to experience reality for fitness, not reality as it is. Point to the example, which I found super fascinating. Uh, I was just reading about it two days ago, synesthesia. Uh, for anybody listening, synesthesia is the experience of having essentially multiple of our senses interacting. So you can you know, taste music, you can see color and numbers, all of these things where 
I just think about a number. I think about a number. It doesn't have color. It doesn't have taste. It doesn't have smell. It doesn't have any other senses. But there's no reason that my perception that the number five is just a black number on a piece of paper, as opposed to my wife, who is a synesthete, uh, her perception of a number has color attached to it. There's no reason that her perspective on that isn't a more accurate read of reality. In fact, it may be a more accurate read of reality because there's another sense attached to it. Again, not not actual reality, but tending towards it. I haven't got to the part where we talk about, um, you know, the basic elements of the universe and consciousness being the the fundamental piece of it. Um, but just to continue to elaborate on on Don Hoffman's perspective, he he's kind of like, you know, when you interact with a computer and open up a, an email program, you're interacting with an email program but you're not actually interacting with the fundamental nature of the computer, which is transistors and screens and all that kind of stuff, but there's an interface there. And so the human experience is just an interface with the universe and, and maybe a, just an interface for the universe to experience itself. Is, is that an accurate kind of assessment of, of Don Hoffman's perspective as well? Yeah, I'd say that's spot on. And, you know, Don's done remarkable work. What he, he's not just proposed theories, um, but he's actually worked out some mathematics. And he's demonstrated that if you perceive, if you, if you start with the assumption that the world is made of a collection of conscious agents, Don's been able to actually derive special relativity and uh, the Schrodinger equation from some of those fundamental assumptions. And, and that's really remarkable. Shifting gears only slightly uh, beyond consciousness, neuroscience, and quantum physics, Thomas, you've also written about psychedelics and just curious, share as much or as little as you want to about your personal experience at all. But what is your relationship to, to psychedelics and how have they impacted your life beyond just being a source of inspiration for some articles that you've written? They have been very important and grounding at certain points in my life and certainly in terms of mental health and you know, the recent article which I wrote, which was about psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And I think this is, you know, this is a, it could be an incredibly beneficial um, thing for society when we're facing so many crises, if it is employed in, in the right way, or, you know, society adopts it in, in the right way, and it doesn't get drawn into the, say, you know, the dominant capitalist medical infrastructure that that exists right now, and you know, having benefited from it, you know, personally, uh, yeah, I think it would be a terrible shame if that happened. I think, in terms of maybe more on in line with what we're talking about here, experience when you're tripping, it's as though it's as though you feel like you're accessing some deeper level of, of reality that you're, that you're not attuned to, um, in your normal state of consciousness. And yeah, it seemed really obvious and present, but I guess having thought about it more recently and, and looking, I think there's some theories of how psychedelics work. There's this predictive processing theory called Rebus in the anarchic brain that yeah, that Robin Carhart Harris and um, he's done a lot of uh, the sort of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy research at Imperial and, and now in the US is, um, has, has done a lot of work on. And it's, you know, it's, it's this idea that we experience the world as 
this, uh, I guess, like projected hallucination. We predict what we expect the world is going to be. And then as we sense the world and the senses moderate that a little bit, and this allows us to kind of not have to be constantly absorbing like vast amounts of sensory data um, and just allows us to make these little tweaks according to um, yeah, how our predictions or perceptions of what, or expectations rather of what the word will be differ from, from what, what we're sensing. Uh, and they have these things called prediction errors, which are the, which are the differences between the two. And all, your brain is always trying to minimize your, the prediction errors according to this theory. And, and, and I think in that picture, it, it, it seems that it's, it's less that, you know, my, I was receiving access to something out there that was, um, you know, that was giving me some special knowledge about what was out there, but, it, and, and rather what that allows to do when you take psychedelics is that it allows more chaos to reign, uh, in these, via these, um, prediction errors. And so maybe really the, changes in how I was or the new knowledge I was getting was really internal knowledge that it allows your brain to shift between different states. And, and this is why it's can be so effective in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Your brain can, you know, get itself out of some rut, which is presenting itself as mental illness. And so if your brain is also then, you know, able through these prediction errors to find itself in quite malleable and find itself in different states that otherwise it wouldn't be able to access, then I think that that's where this feeling of this real, of these truths are coming from. And I think, you know, that's one reason why you might be, you know, if you're, if you're tripping, you, there might be a tree there and you might feel like, you know, you're really like connecting with this, this tree or, or, or whatever it is, but it, it's maybe this, you know, a nature being such like a, a present, um, you know, and this connection with nature or even experience of, of oneness, which, which can be felt, maybe that is coming from your brain being able to revert back to some maybe more, I don't know, I don't want to say primitive, but almost more kind of, you know, old, older state, one that doesn't have all of these concepts that um, our present day society like layers into it and boxes it in, but it allows it to revert to and, and to see, yeah, to see these things afresh from the inside rather than the outside. So Randy, I, I can't wait for your thoughts on this, but I, I just want to try and see if I can articulate, um, you know, the theory proposed by Robin Carhart Harris and, and how psychedelics interact. So if I'm understanding correctly, there's an algorithm that is us um, that makes predictions about how the world works. And so when I knock my hand on this desk, you know, that, that algorithm says it's going to hurt a little bit. I'm going to hear a sound back and maybe there's all these other attendant consequences, but, and then within the algorithm, there's small correction errors. So it's kind of like, oh, it doesn't, didn't expect that because that's not quite within the algorithm, but it's close enough. So, you know, I correct for it and now I don't have to be consumed by making that, doing that calculation of what happens when I hit my hand here, it becomes a very simple calculation within a degree of error. And that's how I understand my experience with the universe. And then what psychedelics do is they can go back in and instead of just focusing on, you know, those correction algorithms that just adjust the data slightly, they go in and they can scramble the whole algorithm for a little while. So your algorithm itself is a little bit different as opposed to just the correction mechanisms. Is that a, a fairly simple way of articulating what you said? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's broadly right. I'd say, yeah, you're those, 
those prediction errors are, are really trying to bring what you expect in line with what data is coming in. Like you say, if you, if you knock a sound and it's not quite what you predicted or expected it to sound like, then it would update that. So the next time you knock, it would sound more like what, yeah, what the sense data that, that, that is coming in. Um, and then, yeah, by allowing those prediction errors to, to kind of run riot a, a little bit, it just means that, yeah, you, there's, um, yeah, I think it's kind of giving you your, it's allowing your expectations to, especially to, to kind of go, um, have a bit more free, free reign. Randy would, would love your thoughts on all of this. Uh, but maybe start with, um, how psych we talked about your, your experience with psychedelics a little bit in, in, Taste of a Mango Part One. This will probably be called Taste of a Mango Part Two. But so maybe not in terms of your experience with psychedelics, but you know your understanding of how what psychedelics show us. Do they just show us something about ourselves, or or do you think they're opening up something about the nature of reality itself? And and what has your experience been in, in that particular conversation? You, you touched on it at the beginning of this call uh, conversation, but uh, would love to go deeper into that. Yeah, I mean, basically, you're asking, what do psychedelics do? And I usually answer that question by dividing my answer into two parts. Um, there's very clearly a psychological part, right? The, the psychedelic medicines can help you kind of look at your own thoughts and behaviors from a third-person perspective. And that's exactly what we're using in the therapeutic process. So our patients who come into field trip and do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, they're taking advantage of the, the psychological insights that these medicines can give. But at a deeper level, I, I like to think of these medicines as behaving the way that Aldous Huxley described. Aldous Huxley referred to psychedelics um, as altering the reducing valve behavior of the mind. So what he meant by that is the brain is a reducing valve is that we take in massive, massive amounts of information, way too much information for our consciousness to, to process or, or perceive or be aware of in any given time. And so the brain is, is reducing that information down to a stream that we can handle. And psychedelics just sort of remove that filter. And when that happens, you really can get the sense that you are seeing a deeper level of reality that it's more real than the world, the physical world that we perceive. Now, what's the ontology behind that? That's a debate for the for the eons. But from a from a subjective sense, yeah, there there very much is a sense that being on psychedelics can give that journeyer a view of reality that is somehow more informed and more real than what we perceive in a normal waking state. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly been my experience. Even this past weekend, I, I, I had an experience and, um, you know, my deep sense, and this is where it converges back into the conversation around physics, is some of the theories of physics posit that time doesn't, the linearity of time doesn't really exist, that that's a figment of a, the human imagination or the human experience, but it's not necessarily concordant with what the physical reality is. and. I distinctly had the sense that time doesn't exist, that it was all a loop and that, you know, these experiences of my life weren't necessarily in the past, but were just different moments of, in the words of, of Tom Robbins, 
me emerging from the dream, dream soup of the universal consciousness to have that experience only to move back into the dream soup of consciousness, only go to the next, you know, the next experience, you know, all of these are happening simultaneously, but these are just moments in time along the way. And it really gave me the sense that philosophers have talked about now physics have talked about that like time is linearity of time is, is really a subjective experience and is not necessarily scientific fact and super fascinating. And, and to your point, the ontology of it is like going to be debated, but the more conversations we have about it, maybe eventually uh, we'll, we'll get to um, get to a, a deeper understanding of, of what the truth of it is. Um, and it's uh, going to continue to boggle my mind and, and uh, I'm sure everybody else on this call. So so onto my, my final question, and, and I raised this just because Thomas, you, you wrote an article about it, um, which is, what's your perspective on the need for the psychedelic experience in terms of, of psychedelic therapies? I mean, the data will bear this out in the end, uh, but I'm curious to know what your opinion or expectation is. And, and that's a question for, for both of you, but let's start with Thomas. It seems um, to be very important just in terms of the, you know, the ideas we've just been talking about both in terms of say you know the experiences that you've described but in terms of this like predictive processing mod model as well in terms of um you know being able to uh you know get your mind out of a particular rut and find another healthier one the experience and the therapy is 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 key to that, um, I mean, just a bit, a bit of context, you know, that there, there has been some research which has been done um, by David Olson um, in particular, has done quite a lot of work on this, where that you're, you're trying to take a psychedelic compound and then you remove the hallucinogenic components and then you give it, they've so far given this to mice and it seems like it still has some of the hallmarks of, say, sort of antidepressive um, effects. Um, I mean, this hasn't been tested in humans yet. I think there are some trials going on at the moment. Um, and it's, and it's very plausible that, um, you know, there could be some effect. I just, I really doubtful that it will have the, the full dramatic life changing effects that psychedelic assisted therapy has when you have these experiences, because, you know, you're really, you know, it's not just, Again, it's this, this sort of pill popping kind of Western medical mentality that you can take this thing and it will be okay, you know, and that there is, there's a chemical problem with you. Um, and that, you know, and, and you just need, need to take this thing to shift that when the, the philosophy with, um, yeah, psychedelic assisted therapy is, is much more about trying, you know, changing yourself, working on yourself, having therapy before. The experience and afterwards and this being this you know you, you may be coming to some realizations during this experience and that being something which you embed deeply with within your life there is a real problem in terms of how you how to make this very expensive form of of therapy um like accessible widely that is a real issue and so the triplet psychedelics is one way to try and, and meet that need but i th there are other models as well and, and i really like um so Rosalind Watts, who did some of the initial um, clinical trials at Imperial College, has set up uh, this um, yeah organization called ASA Integration, where you know you try and uh, or you know, instead of having 
you find communities of people to provide who have also been through similar experiences to provide some of the support before and after the actual psychedelic experience. So that allows you to reduce some of, of that burden um, and to actually provide, hopefully, a, you know, a deeper, more satisfying um, solution because, you know, often, you know, it's, it, it can be a lack of community that can be a, a cause of depression and anxiety and all kinds of uh, mental health issues today. Appreciate that. Randy, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I do. It's it's definitely something that I've been wondering about uh, as Field Trip is developing its own psychedelic compound. You know, this issue of, of is a trip or a, a very heavy psychedelic type experience necessary for personal growth? And I don't have a strong opinion because uh, I don't know. My guess is that hallucinations and um, synesthesia, all those sensory aspects of a, of a journey is probably not required or not necessary for growth. But what I think is, is important is a dialing down of the internal monologue, you know, the, the, the voice in our head, the ego mind. I mean, that's really where the bulk of, of growth comes from. And psychedelic medicine therapy is spending time with yourself without that roommate in your head, always talking. There's a, an enormous amount of, of, of opportunity for growth when you get to sit with yourself with your mind silenced. And so I, I think that's really the core of the, the benefit of these medicines. And we see that in, in uh, with, with ketamine work, right? Ketamine's not considered a psychedelic, yet people are getting significant personal growth. Yeah, no, that's entirely fair. I guess my perspective is... You know, if I was going to describe uh, the single most effective and important aspect of psychedelic therapy is, and it touches on your point a little bit, Randy, is is not just the quieting of the ego, but also the recognition, recognition that there's possibility beyond what we currently perceive. And so those hallucinations, the, those senses that are not within our normal sphere, you know, kind of push the boundary of possibility uh, to new spaces. And, and by creating that space, then you have the opportunity to become hopeful and optimistic and see going back to, you know, the nature of this whole conversation. And, and it reminds me of one of the podcasts we did earlier uh, with Julian, who, who said, you know, I've always been a, a very kind of, I see it as it is. The world is as I experienced, very nihilistic, right? And after his ketamine experiences, he's like, maybe the world isn't exactly as I think it is. And just that wedge, that opening right there, uh, kind of gave him hope to to shift, and uh, you know I haven't caught up with him recently, but it really opens up the possibility that it's that right that the going back to Donald Hoffman and 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 um, and uh, and uh, um, sorry I'm trying uh, Smolin and, and Cortez, it's like maybe it's just like the possibility that all of this is is there's more to it. Uh, there's you know we're existing in a set, but there's a much bigger set outside of our existing set. Just tapping into that momentarily is, is enough to people to spark people out of where they are. But uh, on that note, I have taken up an hour and a half of, of both of your gentlemen's time. So I wanted to thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. I found the conversation illuminating and challenging as I try to wrap my head around of some of these uh, incredibly complex 
conversation points and, and theories and translate it into something that's kind of digestible and easy to understand and, and translates into the conversation around psychedelics and personal growth, because fundamentally that's what field tripping is about. But having these conversations about consciousness, I think is, is so fundamentally relevant to it. And, and for all those people who are like, no, that's too woo woo for me, inserting the fact that science may, and certainly some theories are starting to intersect those conversations. So it's not nearly as woo-woo as some people may think, I think opens up this conversation to a whole new audience of people. And I think that's going to be uh, incredibly impactful for, for field trip, for, for the future of our society. So long-winded way of saying thank you both for making the time. Really appreciated your insights and uh, look forward to continuing the dialogues with both of you. And, and, uh, and thank you. Yeah, this was fun. It's lovely to chat. Thank you. Physicist Richard Feynman once said, If you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics. Arthur Eddington also said about quantum mechanics, Something unknown is doing don't know what. So if you find the conversation in this podcast hard to follow, or if you found that Thomas, Randy, or I tripped over our words quite a bit, it's because the things we are trying to articulate are some of the most complex concepts ever contemplated. And we didn't even try to touch the math part of it. But let me try to distill what we talked about as best as I can. First, what quantum mechanics tells us is that at a quantum level, our experience with reality, that the sound you hear right now is real, that the phone you're listening to this podcast on is a physical object, that if you kick a soccer ball, it will go in a particular direction that you're swinging your leg. And what is actually underlying that reality don't necessarily match up. Second, quantum mechanics seems to import the requirement for some level of consciousness for there to exist any notion of reality at all. In fact, quantum physics may actually be telling us that there is no such thing as an objective reality, but rather that the whole of experience is just our consciousness interacting with and interpreting different quantum fields. Third, and finally, because our experiences of sight, smell, taste, touch, and sound are just our consciousness interacting with different quantum fields, if we alter our consciousness, we alter reality. That's where the psychedelics come into this picture. They are a lens by which we can open up our minds to experience quantum fields in an entirely different way. This is one of the notions that Donald Feldman is trying to get at when he talks about the fact that all of our experience is just a way to interact with these fields and that it's kind of like our experience is a, an icon on a computer that when we double click on that icon, we interact with a form of that reality, but it's only a form of that reality. And psychedelics are maybe just a different way to open up a new program to interact with reality. This is all pretty heady and heavy stuff. So if you want to learn more about this, please check out any of Thomas's writings on the subject or check out the book, The Case Against Reality by Donald Hoffman and The God Equation by Michio Kaku as good points of reference. And if you have any questions, for the love of God, please don't ask me. I'm just maybe slightly less confused than you are on this subject, but I find it wholly fascinating and I hope you did too. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. And episodes like this certainly require your curiosity. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page, and associate producers are Macy Baker and Alex Sherman. Special thanks to our production partner, Quill, and of course, many thanks to Thomas Luton for joining us today. To learn more about his work, visit thomasluton.com.